Welcome back to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. This is Jeremy Sims, and we are finally finishing up the book of Galatians. We're doing Galatians chapter 6 today, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited to be finishing up this project, so hopefully we can push this out soon. And uh, yeah, and also I'm excited that it's a, a relatively easy section to cover. Um, as I mentioned, I think, in the last podcast, the stuff in the middle of the book of Galatians is really dense with a theological doctrine, and Paul's arguments are always complicated. And then last chapter, chapter 5, wasn't as complicated. It was more practical, but there was so much stuff in there um, that it was really, uh, it really went through a lot pretty quickly. This is less complicated, and it's not nearly as dense um, in terms of how much stuff I have to say about it. So this should be a nice cruise to the finish, uh, which is all right with me. Anyway, in case you're new to the Bible study we're doing here, basically the book of Galatians is about when uh, Paul was writing to a church that had gotten the impression from this group called the Judaizers that to truly be Christians, they had to keep the Mosaic Law, that Old Testament covenant. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about grace through faith in Christ. It's not about keeping the law to prove yourself worthy of, of God. It's realizing you're not worthy of God and accepting Christ's free gift through faith. And we've been on quite a journey to get there. The the first chapter and a half was Paul really just establishing his credibility as an apostle, as somebody who knew the gospel. And then we get into the middle sections on these really dense theological arguments that Paul has for why salvation is by faith and not by works of the law. And then in chapter five, we kind of transition. That's what we covered last time. And there he says, he reminds them that they've been set free from the burden of trying to keep the law for this source of justification. He tells them that if they try to keep the law as their form of justification, they are cut off from Christ. He says that the Judaizers need to be cut off from the church and that he just wishes they would, well, he says he wishes that they would castrate themselves, actually. Uh, just get rid of those guys. They're no good. Um, and, and he says what we should be doing with this freedom, we're not just because we are free from law doesn't mean we should start sinning. Rather, we should be using that freedom to serve one another. And he gives us this guide saying, okay, you're not under the Mosaic law, but how do you know if you are, are walking as God would want you to? And our answer is to walk by the Spirit, to walk by the leading of the Spirit. In contrast, the work of the flesh, which are real nasty stuff, a bunch of sins that we talked about, it, with the, the fruit of the Spirit, the good things, the good characteristics that God will naturally bring forth in our lives. And it ends up with this idea of, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And that ties in directly to chapter number six, uh, where he's saying, okay, what do you do? You serve one another. And what Paul's going to focus on uh, in chapter six is us bearing one another's burdens, us helping each other out with our our loads that we have to carry in life uh, when it becomes overly cumbersome. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, and then he wraps up kind of just, he does a, a final thought on a final warning about the Judaizers again, kind of recapping the entire theme of the book. And he says goodbye. And, and that's what we're doing today in chapter six. So let's get into it. Let's start by reading over the entire chapter, all of chapter six, and then we'll come back to the top and start breaking it down verse by verse. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 
Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So back up at the top of the chapter, um, this first half of chapter 6 is really about Paul saying, hey, we need to bear one another's burdens. We need to help each other out. And one of the most important ways the way he starts off with here is restoring those that have gotten caught up in sin. And uh, this really speaks to my heart. I kind of feel a little heavy about this at the moment because I've just seen so much of this here recently of Christians who've got caught up in sin. And this is just a really critical aspect of the church, and it's something that feels like it's kind of neglected. I, I feel like a lot of us want to come to church, and we're just here for our five minutes of God in the week, and um, and then we're ready to go back on our way doing whatever it was we did before. And that's not what, that, I mean, there's a lot of goodness in, in coming to church and having being blessed by it and getting a little bit of, you know, time focusing specifically on God. Hopefully you have more than just what's at church. But part of the role of church, and there's many aspects, but is to have that iron sharpening iron to aspect to restore one another. That is really critical. And, and uh, you know, I just really have a burden for that. And we need to be looking for opportunities to do that with others and to be open to that ourselves. But anyway, you'll see, see it says, if anyone is caught in a transgression. Now, this idea of caught in a transgression, most commentators say this seems almost like the idea of somebody being kind of... Uh, uh, like caught by surprise. It's like somebody, it's not somebody who meant to get in a mess, but yet they find themselves in a mess, you know, which I think all of us can probably relate to that on some level. But yeah, it's not somebody who's determined to keep on doing wrong. It's somebody who's been like, ah, man, I'm in a mess now and I need some help. And you'll notice this isn't given to everybody in the church, uh, at least not exactly. It specifically focuses out those who are spiritual. You who are spiritual restore such a one. Um, those that have uh, have some spiritual maturity about them, I think is what's being conveyed there. Now, some people think that those who are spiritual are referring to anybody who's a Christian, you know, because in a certain sense, we are all spiritual. We're spiritually reborn. If, if you're a sincere Christian, um, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. However, not everybody walks in the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 was talking about. And I think that's more in line with what Paul means here when he's saying those who are spiritual. He's saying those of you that walk daily with God— uh, if you need some evidence for this, of, of this being the idea of spiritual maturity, you can check out 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. And there Paul talks about, uh, contrast, those who are spiritual. He says, I wanted to talk to you guys like you were spiritual, 
but I had to talk to you as if you're like little babies who can't take, you know, more serious doctrinal things. Um, so yeah, I think there's a distinction in, in Paul saying, specifically, those of you who are more spiritually mature, restore those weaker brothers, restore those who need some help, who've fallen into sin. And restored has this idea of bring somebody back to their former state. You know, we are we are made clean by Christ. But you remember there's that moment in the Gospels where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And that is symbolic of, look, you are you are clean, but then your feet get dirty. You're walking here on this corrupt, filthy earth, and you get some stuff stuck on your feet at times. And you need to get your brother should help wash your feet, clean you off from that mess you get walking here on earth. It's that same idea. We're restoring someone. And I love, uh, this is taken from the Enduring Word commentary by David Guzik. But I like what he says here, the overtaken ones need to be restored. They are not to be ignored. They are not to be excused. They are not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. And how? In the spirit of gentleness. Right? Gentleness is that word we talked about last time in, in one of the uh, gifts of the Spirit, which again indicates this is something that those who are more spiritually mature, they're walking in the Spirit, need to be doing. But it's always in the spirit of gentleness, meekness, that idea of you have power and strength. It's not that you're a wuss, but you have it under control. You know the right way to approach someone. And I think that idea ties into the next part where it says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Well, why are those thoughts related? Why do you need to watch yourself when you're trying to help restore somebody else? Well, I think the idea there is that when you see somebody in trouble and you're like, I need to let this person know that they're in trouble and, and try to help them get out of that, it is really easy to be lifted up in pride. Because after all, they're the ones who's mess, who are messed up and you're the spiritual one who has it all figured out, who's going to have to explain it to them. It would be really easy to get a condescending attitude and get lifted up in yourself. And just like Proverbs says, that's when you that's when you're setting yourself up for a fall, right? So it needs to be done carefully in gentleness. Um, it'd be, it's really easy to mess those situations up. But that the fact that it's difficult does not remove Christians' responsibility to restore one another. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's a lot of beautiful stuff in this little verse. So burdens, we're to bear one another's burdens. What's a burden? Well, burden is when you're really, really heavily loaded down. Like imagine a camel back in the day would be a good transport, and you just put as much stuff on it as possible until it couldn't take much more. That would be a burden. It's like when you're almost to the point of being crushed by your load. That's when we are supposed to bear one another's burdens, right? It's, it's that heavy load. And notice that the emphasis is on bearing other people's burdens. It's not saying, expect to have your burdens borne. All right, if you focus, if you're expecting others to bear your burdens, if that's what you're looking at in your life, you're going to be constantly disappointed and frustrated, but rather you can, you'd be surprised the amount of joy and peace you would get if you got interested in other people's lives and trying to help them out with what's going on in their lives. Being self-focused is a sure path to being frustrated and bitter. So bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Now, people have different views on this. Some people think it's the entirety of the new covenant. Some people think it's the, uh, the moral principles that are binding on mankind throughout all time, like the moral law. Some people call it that. Uh, some people think it's the collection of teachings passed on by the apostles. But most people seem to tie it back down back to something 
Jesus mentions in John 13, where he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are uh, also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A lot of people call this the law of love. If you can just love one another, that, that's the law of Christ. And bearing one another's burdens is how we work that out in the Christian walk. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So I think this is really funny in that Paul starts off this chapter saying, hey, you who are spiritual, restore those who get caught up in sin. And then it's like he's so concerned that people are going to to then get lifted up in pride. He spends the rest of the paragraph just being like, but don't think too much of yourself, guys. <laughs> Keep yourself under control. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right there for this ministry of restoration, there are three characteristics at least, uh, which is um, spirituality, uh, gentleness, and caution. Uh, and I, you might throw in as well self knowledge, because he's saying you're deceiving yourself if you think you're something special when when you're just another sinner in need of God's forgiveness. We all need to have that realization, that appropriate sense of self, which is very much in need of God's grace and forgiveness, just like our brothers. Verse 4, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Um, so that word that's translated test can be like prove or examine. So we're supposed to test, prove, or examine ourselves. Look inwards. This is the same thought where he's talking about don't get focused on other people. Focus, I mean, you should focus on other people in terms of bearing their burdens, but in terms of not getting cocky, that's where you focus on yourself. Test yourself, prove yourself, examine yourself in terms of what? Your own work. Now, your own work can be the things that you do, like, you know, good works or something like that. It also can be like the work you've been given to do by God. Like, what's your assignment? And here's the idea. I think he's saying, um, test your own work. Examine how well you are walking with God, with what God has given you to do. That should be your perspective, not comparing yourself with your other brothers who may have gotten caught in a trespass or sin. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And I think that rubs us the wrong way. Boast, I mean, we shouldn't be boasting. That's a very um, very negative word in our culture. It's very closely connected with pride. Um, but here's the thing. I think he's saying you can actually be, in a certain sense, proud of your accomplishments, but not proud in the sense of thinking too much of yourself or thinking you accomplished everything purely on your own, realizing that anything you do is by the grace of God and saying, look, I actually did this thing. Like if you've, if you did a good work, cool, be happy you did a good work. If you, you know, were in a lot of debt and paid off your debt, great. You can, you can boast in that, not in a cocky way, but in a, I did this and it's okay for me to be proud of this. In the same way, you know, if you have children, you probably say, I'm proud of you from time to time when they do something good. And you want them to feel that pride themselves, right? But it's pride in doing what is proper, what is right. And it's not thinking too much of themselves. It's it's thinking the appropriate thing about yourself. Look at what you've actually done. Don't worry about what your brothers have done. Don't compare yourself to them. Compare yourself to what God has given you to do and how well you're fulfilling that obligation. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, wait a second. We start off this paragraph saying um, that we are to bear one another's burdens, and now it's saying we have to bear our own load? What is this? 
All right. Is it like we're all cooperating and working together to lift one another up? Or is it that we all have to bear our own load? Well, it's both. Uh, it's both, but there is a distinction in these terms. The term for burden in verse 1 is different than the term for load in verse 5. In burden, uh, with burden in verse 1, where to bear one another's burdens, remember it has the idea of like being like a, almost like a camel being loaded down really heavy. That's like an especially heavy burden. Whereas load is a significant burden. It is, is a significant weight, but it's a weight that somebody could carry. It's like the term that's used for Roman soldiers going to war when they'd be carrying all their equipment with them. That would be their load. And each soldier would be responsible for carrying their own load into battle. And the same thing is true with us. Um, and you'll notice here, well, well, let's stay on that for a second more, because, uh, you know, there's some tension here. So it, it seems to be saying there are some things that each of us are required to bear on our own, and there are some things that are too much for us to bear on our own, and that's why we need the community. That's when we need our fellow Christians to help lift us up, to help carry and share that burden. And and how do we know the difference there? Well, that takes somebody who is who has spiritual discernment, who is spiritual, right? That takes somebody with some wisdom. Um, and notice also that it says, will each have to bear, each will have to bear his own load. Will have to bear is future tense. And this is probably referring to the judgment, the final judgment of Christ. And each one of us is going to stand before God and give an account for what we did. And, and we live in one of the most luxurious uh, societies in to have ever lived the most luxurious society, I do wonder if we've become accustomed to having too little load to, burden, to bear. You know, God gave you a life. He gave you some certain amount of time, a certain amount of responsibilities. You better be bearing those because you're going to have to give account for it one day. Your load. He's going to say, I gave you this load. Did you carry it? So Paul's going to continue the same thought of bearing one another's burdens, but he's going to start applying it in some different ways in terms of, of sharing resources to help one another, fellow Christians. He's going to start actually in sharing money with uh, preachers, basically. In verse 6, it says, Let the one who is taught in the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is a passage that famously preachers usually don't like preaching. Uh, the stereotype is that preachers are all money-grubbing and want to talk about getting more money, but if you actually talk to them, most of them don't really like asking people for money, and they feel very uncomfortable when this topic comes up. So I've seen many times that uh, if there's an evangelist, like a traveling evangelist who goes from place to place um, preaching, a lot of times the pastors don't like mention the finance stuff, but when their buddy evangelist comes in, the evangelist will know, oh, he's not going to want to talk about this, so I'll talk about it for him and say, you need to give this guy money. Um, just kind of a funny thing. But there's a reason for this. This isn't money grubbing. Paul is saying, look, you bear one another's burdens. And um, that if you're taught in the word, those people should be compensated. Now, there is some debate as to what this means. For instance, I've heard some people suggest that uh, those that are taught in the word share all good things with one who teaches. That's talking about uh, if you are blessed by the word, you should tell the person who, who taught you that thing that you were blessed by the word. And that's a good principle. But if you look up this, these terms involved here, sharing all good things, it does seem to have a financial connotation where you see this used in other places in the New Testament. That's what the vast majority of commentators think this means. It's talking about paying the person who teaches you spiritually. Um, and specifically, this would generally be the role of the, the elders. So, so what's the point of this? Why is Paul bringing this up, rather? Well, uh, 
because, uh, or let me put it this way, why does Paul feel a need to explain this? Wasn't this a common thing? The priests were paid, the uh, the Levites who did other things in the temple were paid. Why wouldn't it just be assumed that the pastors and preachers would be paid as well? Well, again, this is the early days of the church. They don't necessarily know exactly how things are done. And Paul was an evangelist. He'd go to new areas and start new churches. And we see in a couple places in the New Testament, uh, he actually mentions that he didn't charge the people that he was there. He didn't let them pay him anything. In 1 Corinthians 9, he mentions this. In 2 Corinthians 11, he mentions it. He apparently didn't want to have any obstacle to the gospel going forward. He didn't want the, it to appear like he was, he was, you know, just there for his own personal gain. And so he would have other Christian churches from other areas pay him money, fund him for spreading the gospel. So the church they was ministering to at that time would not be expected to give him anything. But then he'd leave, and he'd leave the church in, in the hands of some other minister, no doubt, some other elders before he left. But you can understand if they were like, well, Paul didn't charge anything, and here these people are working, you know, presumably like a full-time job being an elder— uh, and Paul's like, no, 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 I didn't charge you. That was special circumstances. Generally speaking, if somebody works, give them money for the work they do, compensate them. And that's what he's trying to get across here. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So what's the connection here? Why is he talking about this? It's still on that same thought of bear one another's burdens, do good for other people, but the idea here is resources, I think, is the central idea. God has given you stuff. He's given you time and money and, and who know, talents, whatever else, right? And he's saying, don't be deceived. You're going to be held to account for that. And also, whatever you sow, that's what you reap. You know, if you put an apple seed into the ground, you're going to get an apple tree. If you put something good or bad into your life, that's what you're going to reap. And how does that sowing reaping works? Well, not every time you sow do you immediately reap. You know, some seeds go astray and don't bring forth fruit, but some bring forth lots of fruit. And it's of the same type of whatever you put down. And it happens slowly. You need patience. All right? But it starts off slow and it gets bigger. So these are all the principles involved in these saying, don't think that what you are sowing right now isn't going to come back. It is for good or bad. This is made even more explicit in verse 8, where he says, For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what's he saying here? He's saying you're always sowing to something, and you're either going to get corruption or you're going to get eternal life. Now, when it says eternal life, he's already talking to Christians here. I don't think he's saying, if you sow to something that's not spiritual, you're going to go to hell. I don't think that's what's being expressed here. They're Christians. They're going to heaven. But what? But there are eternal things, and there are temporal things. The fleshly things always bring corruption that will perish. And spiritual things always last eternally, and they bring forth life. Uh, and in and, and one more direct way, like we were just talking about giving money to preachers, people who study the Word, if those people are, are preaching the Word, that's going to hopefully produce fruit, like fruit as in Christian converts, right? And then they're the eternal life in that case. But also just in more temporary ways, I mean, there are things, if you really, if you really get an eternal perspective on your life, if you really think about it, think about what is going to matter a million years from now. Most of the stuff you're doing will not, even the stuff that's morally neutral that isn't good or bad, but it's just, hey, I want to 
put a new deck or buy a new car. All right, it's not going to matter in a million years. But the relationships and the things you do for Christ, that sowing to things that are spiritual, that does matter eternally. I, I want you to think, like, imagine you have $1,000 and you can spend that $1,000 on, like, renovating your kitchen or buy a new entertainment system or giving to somebody who's in need, right? You can do all those things with that $1,000, but you can't do all of those at once because once that $1,000 is spent, it's spent, it's gone. And the same thing is true with our life. That hour you spent arguing on Facebook, you're never going to get back. That hour you spent spending time with your child, you're never going to get back. Everything that we do, every every single thing we do, we are either investing it in the spiritual or the carnal, and we will reap it. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I wonder if when we get to heaven there's going to be a time where we will get to see all the things that we could have accomplished, that we could have done, all the all the wonderful things that could have happened if we had made better choices, if we hadn't given up. I don't know. I don't think there's... there. We do know there's going to be a judgment. We don't know that that particular situation is going to come up, though, that God's going to be like, here's what you could have had. But it seems like a question that might come up, <laughs> you know? And I, that'd be a very sad day. Because uh, how many times have there... It really should make you wonder how many times have you been really close to something wonderful and you just haven't stuck with the right thing long enough. I, I suspect there have been many times for me. That word that the ESV translates as not give up, uh, translated in other versions as faint not. If we don't faint, if we don't lose heart, if we don't become weary, if we don't grow weary, if we don't become despondent. I wonder how many of us are feeling that way. I had a pastor who used to say that uh, all of us are either going into a time of trouble, or we're in the time of trouble, or we're coming out of a time of trouble, and the cycle's about to begin again here soon. That's kind of a dark way to look at things in a way, but it's also got a lot of truth to it. I wonder how much of us are feeling weary, feeling like losing heart. I mean, life is, life is tough. God never said... Jesus gave us a lot of promises as Christians, but none of them involved anything about not going through hard times, but rather that we would go through the hard times with him and that we would have victory in the end. Let's not give up, guys. I think Christians sometimes ask themselves, why, you know, why is it a tough time? Why am I having so much trouble? And there can be many, many answers to that. I think part of it is that God wants us to be mature. God wants us to have endurance, that long-suffering, as we talked about uh, in the last lesson. I think that's part of it. Another part of it is that there's just seasons to different things. I always think of, when I hear this verse, Ecclesiastes 3, where it goes, for everything there is a season and a time, for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So look, guys, there are different seasons, and maybe this isn't the season of reaping but is the season of being faithful with what God has given us.
and he, we are promised that we will reap. Verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good for, to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I love that it says, as we have opportunity. I think it's really easy for us to start getting bogged down in our responsibilities and start feeling like they are things we have to do. They're, they're things thrust upon us. They're things holding us back. But that's, that's the way you're framing your life. That's the way you're thinking about your life. You're choosing to look at it that way. God says no, or Paul's saying here, and God through Paul, of course, is saying these what you have in your life, whatever you have in your life, these are opportunities. As much as you have opportunities, do good. Do good. Every day you're encountering different things. What what would happen to your life if just in every moment you try to keep in mind, what is the opportunity God is giving me here to do good? You know, I have found in my life, and I've I've encountered other brothers who have the same problem, where you look at all the things you could potentially be doing and you start to despair because you feel like there are a million things you could be doing to help others. And and you just realize how far you're failing to meet all the potential needs. That's ridiculous. Do not be that way. That is silly to the extreme. Whatever God has given you, use that opportunity. Commit to something. Committing to something to do good is better than fretting over all the things you cannot do. <laughs> Because we're all limited, and God understands that better than anybody. What God has given you as an opportunity to do, take advantage of those. And if you don't know, ask God, what is it that I can work on? Look at life and say, God, you have given me these resources to do something good for you. Show me what the best use of what you've given me would be. And be faithful in that. And we are to do good to all people, but especially the household of faith. There is an emphasis there on your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where our focus needs to be. Verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. What does this large letters thing mean? Well, what we think happened is we think that Paul would generally write his letters with the assistance of another person. Um, you know, he might exchange the ideas with them and, and work with them very closely. They might have somebody else physically write it down. But it seems like from what we gather here and from some other letters that Paul would, towards the end of the letter, want to write in his own personal hand, uh, kind of like the, the goodbye section, the final little bit. And that was a sign of, of his genuineness, of his sincerity, of it being legitimately through him. It was a way to make it distinct. Um, and just to show, like, I'm invested in what I'm saying here. I, I care, you know, kind of a bit like we do a signature these days. So we think the entire end, the rest of this, was all written personally in Paul's hand. And as far as being large letters, there, there are some other possible reasons for it, but a lot of people think that he's basically using the equivalent of caps locks in the, in the ancient world. He might be saying, look, if you get nothing else, get this conclusion, because I'm going to spell it all out for you guys again with really large letters so you get the idea. Verse 12, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So interestingly, this is the first time or uh, that I can recall the book mentioning why the Judaizers were acting like they were. And in Paul's estimation, they were doing it because they want to show a good good sign in the flesh. They were wanting, you know, to be able to have uh, something be like, look what we've done. And also they were trying to avoid persecution. So they had 
at base, uh, very selfish motives for this. So uh, I think the good showing in the flesh is interesting because, of course, what was that good showing in the flesh? Well, I think that means, like, look at our fleshly efforts. Look how look all this good we've done. But also it's a wordplay because of circumcision, of course. You're, you're literally making a sign in the flesh. Um, some commentators mentioned that, like, uh, David, if you'll remember, uh, Saul uh, ordered him to get 200 foreskins from the Philistines as a, a sign of him being worthy to marry Saul's daughter. And David did that. And it's almost like that of like, look what we've done. Look at all the foreskins we've got. Uh, look at what we've successfully done. But yeah, they, they want to do that and to avoid the persecution for the cross of Christ. What's up with that? Well, uh, f from the Jewish end, persecution from the Jewish end, there were, they were basically saying, if they if they were saying they weren't going to be circumcised, then it's basically making an entire break with the law as your form of justification, right? So, the Judaizers seem to be wanting to keep Christ, but then also keeping the Mosaic law as a form of justification. And Paul saying, and and apparently that would have been enough. The implication seems to be here that that would have been enough to keep the Jews happy. Like, as long as you're keeping the law, okay, you can, maybe you can think this is the Messiah. Maybe. Circumcision may have actually spared people from Roman persecution as well, because the Romans kind of had an uneasy alliance with the Jews in that they, the Jewish religion had authority to be practiced under certain circumstances, so they kind of made peace with that. But if you're a Christian and you're breaking from, you know, the Mosaic law, that, that Jewish covenant, well, in that case, you're no longer covered underneath that kind of uneasy alliance the Rome had with the Jewish people. So uh, it could have avoided persecution potentially on either end. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but the desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So again, we just see that the Judaizers had very petty motivations here. They just wanted to be able to boast and brag about what they had accomplished. That was their, their central motive. Uh, they wanted to be able to look at what they had done uh, and kind of put their mark in, in multiple senses on these, on the, uh, these Christians. Uh, and Nosa says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Some some people think it means that these other people, the Judaizers, were also intentionally not keeping the law in some way that's not disclosed. I, I don't I doubt that. I think probably the idea is that just Paul's going back to the idea discussed, you know, towards the central part of our Galatian study, where Paul is pointing out you can't keep the law perfectly. It's either perfect compliance or you're not keeping it. Uh, and he, he's kind of doing that thing. Like, even these people that think they're keeping the law, they're not. They're failing, just like we all fail in comparison to God's perfect standards. Verse 14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. So here we find out that the Judaizers want to boast in their own flesh and their own accomplishments, which is really just them in a nutshell, right? Here, Paul's Coming back to the central contrast of Galatians, do you do it by your own work, by your own fleshly efforts? Or, as Paul says, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did all the work. He did everything. I'm living in the victory he provided for me. He's just summing it up here at the end. That is the central conflict. That's what I boast in. And think about what he's boasting in there. We think of the cross of Christ, and that's, that's a, that is in a certain way a symbol of victory to us. But it wasn't in that day. Not at all. It's, 
that's like saying you boast in the electric chair. The the cross was such a horrid thing. It was the worst way they could kill somebody, uh, or at least was thought of as that that uh, as the worst way. Um, the Romans wouldn't even describe crucifixion directly. They would they had a euphemism where they'd say if somebody's going to be crucified, hang him on an unlucky tree. It was like an unmentionable shame. And in the Jewish culture too, again, to be hanged on a tree, as we talked about earlier uh, in a previous lesson, is is a sign of shame. Great shame. And yet Paul is saying that is what we boast in, the victory of Christ on the cross, his substitutionary death for us, for those who believe and trust in him. That's where our boasting lies. And on the subject of boasting, let's let's run up to verse 4 again, where it said, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Uh, I do maintain it is okay to have a certain amount of pride or, or boasting, as the word is used here, in what you have done. But again, it has got to be grounded in a proper understanding of yourself and not thinking too much of yourself. And realizing, as Paul said, the only thing that there really is to boast in, I mean, he's the one, the guy who wrote verse 4 is the guy who wrote this verse here in verse, what are we in, 14? And he's saying the only thing that you really should boast in is in the work of Jesus Christ. And these things go together because anything, any good what we can do is only because of what Christ has done for us. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. I love that he had to point out that uncircumcision also doesn't benefit anything, because his point isn't that circumcision is bad, it's that it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just not relevant anymore. What's relevant is that we are a new creation in Christ. If you are struggling with sin, if you are struggling with guilt, if you are struggling with any of these things, if you're struggling with guilt, make sure you've repented of whatever the sin is. But also, keep in mind, you are a new creation. It's not my words. This is God's words. He says, you are not what you used to be. You are a new creature. Much of chapters 5 and 6 are saying, you don't do the same activities you used to do. You have new and better nature now. You, uh, you should help one another. You do good to one another. You look for opportunities to do these things. And it's all grounded in the fact that you are a new creation. You're not the same as you used to be. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So I think it's kind of cool that this letter has been at times pretty harsh. Paul has uh, obviously coming in love, but coming in love in, in some ways with a scalpel to cut out the nasty part. And he, he calls a spade a spade and he doesn't pull his punches. Um, and yet he comes, he's wrapping up here. These are the last three verses and he's saying, as for all who walk by this rule, in other words, the people who have heard his message, that understand the truth, that are, are realizing they are a new creation and these things that Paul is saying applies to them and they're not to be under that old covenant uh, for their justification. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Wonderful, comforting words said to them, welcoming, welcoming them in, in a way, or or it's almost like uh, I can almost picture Paul just like patting them on the shoulder and peace and mercy be upon you. So this verse ends in an interesting way. It says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And Israel of God is a unique phrase that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's just here. 
And because it's unique, it's hard to figure out what it means. Usually if uh, a word, a phrase appears multiple times, then you kind of dial in what exactly is meant by it. But we don't have that here, so it's it's debated quite a bit. And long story short, there's a debate between dispensationalists and covenant theologians, and that is not something I understand very well, and I'm not going to go any more into it other than to say there's something to look up if you're interested. But um, basically it comes down to some people think that Israel of God is just another way of referring to the church, whereas other people think this is including, this is saying we also want peace and mercy to be upon ethnic and national Israel. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's meant. Bare minimum, Paul's pl praying for, he's, he's saying peace and mercy, he's putting a blessing upon the church. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So this one strikes me as kind of funny because it almost sounds like a grumpy old man. From now on, nobody bother me is kind of the impression I get. Let no one cause me trouble. Um, so what's that about? I think he's saying, look, I've laid it out for you guys. You guys were having this dispute. I weighed in. I have straightened this out. This is the truth. I've made good arguments. You know me. It's settled. Don't bother me on this anymore. <laughs> From now on, let no one cause me trouble. I don't want to hear about this again. And he says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What's this bearing on my body the marks of Jesus? Well, we know Paul was literally bore marks on his body because he was persecuted horribly. We hear about that various places in the Bible. But also, uh, slaves back in this time would often be branded with the name of their masters or or uh, soldiers would brand themselves with the name of their general, or priests and priestesses would brand themselves with the name of their god sometimes. So he's saying, I've been marked out for Jesus. I have a side, and you know where that is. Don't bother me about this anymore. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So Paul ends each and every one of his epistles, except Romans, I think, is an exception, but every other one he ends talking about grace. The grace of our Lord, he says something along the lines of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But there are little variations. Sometimes he mentions the Father or the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But this one, one of the little differences in this one is he ends on brothers. Which again, like I said a minute ago, he has been real harsh with them in this letter. Like he's been real clear in, in condemning what's wrong. Um, but he comes back to brothers. I think that's interesting. It's not because this isn't a big deal. It's not because the Judaizer heresy wasn't a big deal. Rather, he makes it really clear in Galatians chapter 1, let those who are teaching this false doctrine, these Judaizers, be accursed, which is to be like delivered to destruction. Those people are not brothers. They're set apart. But he says in Galatians chapter 5, I have confidence that you're going to come to the right conclusion. And because of that, because we are united in our belief in Christ, our trust in Christ, his grace, we're brothers. Amen. So that is it. Now with the crickets in the background going crazy, why don't we do one last recap just to see the big picture on the book of Galatians. As I've been saying, we uh, really, Paul starts off addressing this issue, wanting to establish his credibility. So he starts off talking about how he learned of the gospel, how he was commissioned directly by God to be an apostle. That's what we covered in the first lesson. In the second lesson, it talks a little bit of his interactions with the other apostles, what his relationship with them was, and, and some of the issues they discussed relating to these matters. Uh, in the third lesson, we talked, Paul started getting, you know, in that middle part of the book, he really starts getting nitty-gritty into the arguments for why salvation is by faith, not works. And in lesson three, he really starts hammering the we are justified by faith. He says that life comes by faith, not the law. In lesson four, 
to talk about the law and the promise being two separate things, the law being something that came through Moses and the promise of salvation being from Abraham, which way preceded Moses. And he's saying that the law didn't change the promise, and we are children of the promise. And because we are children of the promise, if we trust Christ, we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. In lesson five, Paul kind of gets personal and expresses some concern for the Galatians, saying, hey, guys, don't you realize that something's changed for the worse in you since you've started embracing these false doctrines? And then he makes the allegory with the slave woman, the situation with Abraham. Go back and watch that one if, if it sounds unfamiliar. But basically saying we're not children of the slave, we are children of the free woman. In lesson six, Paul starts to get practical. He's saying, okay, now that you understand these truths, understand it's by grace, let me explain how you should live. You are free, but you should use that freedom to walk in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will keep you from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And then today's lesson, we wrap up, and Paul says, bear one another's burdens. You can do that in a lot of ways. You can do that by restoring your brethren and doing other good works, and everything you do should be done with the knowledge that you're going to reap if you don't faint, if you don't give up. Then he sort of summarizes his arguments once more at the very end, what we just covered, condemns the Judaizers one last time, and he says, don't bother me anymore, guys. <laughs> this issue's settled. And he gives us a blessing. He gives it to the Galatians, but it applies to us too if we're trusting in Christ. So with that, we are done with the book of Galatians. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it blessed you. If you guys really enjoyed this, if you want to hear more from me, I have a YouTube channel called Boring Bible Study. I know, weird name. Some people love it, some people hate it. I uh, just want something that kind of stuck out. Also, I sometimes pick obscure areas of the Bible, and I just I don't just mention the highlights of a passage. I'll mention every single thing my research found or every thought I had. So it's uh, it's very rambling. But if you like people who just kind of discuss the Bible, it's basically like listening to somebody just discuss all their thoughts on the Bible on a certain passage. So if that's of interest to you, you're welcome to check it out. I'll probably be doing more of these. Uh, I'll, I'll ask Michael to um, add a link to the YouTube, uh, my YouTube channel, uh, if you want to check that out. Uh, I will probably be doing more of these for the church. If you like this, let me know. Let the church know. Um, I will probably be doing longer videos on Galatians on my YouTube channel here at some point in the not-too-distant future, where I get like all my thoughts out, again, uh, instead of just kind of a quicker version like what I did here. Yes, this is quick for me, believe it or not. So anyway, that's about it. Uh, again, I hope this is a blessing to you, and uh, I hope to be seeing you guys again before too long. Bye.